So a Baptist preacher, a Catholic priest, and a... No, I'm just playing. I don't, I don't know jokes, and you know if I, the ones I do know, I can't tell right anyway. So forget that. Just give me just a moment. And some of y'all are thinking, wow, that's about to get interesting. All right, check, 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 check. We'll just leave this right here for now. Is that good? All right. Well, last week we began a new series here in Matthew chapter 5 talking about the Beatitudes. And last week we started with the, the beginning, obviously. That's always a good place to start, amen. And so we began here in verse 3 where Jesus begins the Beatitudes, or the blessed uh, description here of kingdom people. And so I want to remind you just what we looked at last week, that, that these Beatitudes aren't something that we do to be saved. These Beatitudes aren't something that we do to, to gain entrance into heaven. These Beatitudes, Jesus describes those people who are part of the kingdom. These are things that are true of every believer. Now, as we here uh, are living and breathing in this body, this flesh, we know that we, we, we do not walk in perfection at this time. But we strive to be, amen, at least we should be in Christ. We should be striving for perfection, for holiness. And so these beatitudes, Lord willing, and by His grace alone, these things should be ever increasing in reality in our lives. If the Lord tarries once He saves us and, and, and gives us day after day after day, these blessed things should become more and more true in each and every one of our lives in Christ. And so last week we looked at the foundational characteristic of all of the kingdom citizens. And that is in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs not will be the kingdom of heaven, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is an aspect in which you and I are citizens now of God's kingdom. It's spiritual now. One day it will be a physical reality. One day God will call His church home by way of rapture. He will call us to be with Him. And there will be people who will be alive. Uh, it may be some of us, uh, if He comes quickly. It may not be if He tarries. But there will be Christians alive when Jesus comes back for His bride, the church. We call it the rapture from a Latin word, raptura, which is based on a Greek word, um, um, harpazo, excuse me, almost forgot. But it speaks of the snatching away. And we see it's, it's not uh, something that's unusual in Scripture. We saw uh, early precedents of it in the Old Testament. Enoch and Elijah both raptured away with God. And so, this will happen to some believers. And, and we will be in the presence of God. We will be in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is where the king is. Amen? The kingdom is where the king is. But this is a spiritual aspect of it that you and I enjoy now in Christ. When Jesus comes at His second coming after the rapture, after seven years of tribulation like the world has never seen, He will, he will thwart all of His enemies, He'll smite them, He'll smash them, and He will establish a 1,000 literal year reign upon this earth, at which time there will be peace like there was in the garden. Everything will be restored. But something is going to happen at the end of that. During that thousand years, there are going to be more babies that are born into that kingdom. And there will come a point when those who are born into that thousand-year kingdom will have to give an accounting of themselves. 
And so at the end of a thousand years, the Bible tells us, and we're going to cover this soon in our Wednesday, well, I'll say soon, in a year or two, in our Wednesday night studies of the book of Revelation as we make our way through. But when we eventually get there, we'll see that at the end of that thousand-year kingdom of peace, that millennial kingdom, it says six times in Revelation 20 that it's 1,000 years. It's a literal 1,000 years, six times in those verses in Revelation chapter 20. But at the end, Satan will be released. He'll be released one final time in order to deceive those people who are born into the tribulation. Now, why would God do such a thing? Everyone has to give an account, and they will have a choice to make. Will they follow God in His holiness, in His purity, in the peace of which He is about? Or will they choose pride and sinfulness in their own way, which is the way of Satan? And there will be those, sadly, who will succumb to the wiles of the enemy. But after that short, short battle, God will say enough and he will cast Satan and all who choose to follow him into the lake of fire for an eternity. And let me just say that Satan's not ruling hell. That's a false idea that we get from, I don't know, Tom and Jerry, Bugs Bunny cartoons, right? He's got his pitchfork and he's there and he's poking people and laughing and he's, he's uh, got that little billow thing and he's making the flames go higher. That is not true. Satan is not in hell now, but he will be confined there as a prisoner in the flames, just like those who follow him. So, with all those things being said by way of, a, of a, I guess, an odd introduction, if you will. These blessed things speak of those who are part of God's kingdom. These blessed things describe the characteristics of the godly, of the citizens of heaven. And so we look at these things, and I know I mentioned before, but I'll say it again. This is not Luby's or the Piccadilly, where we just pick and choose those which we may want at any given time. All of these things should necessarily be true of all Christians. Amen? Amen. That's what we see here. And so Jesus begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that is the foundational quality, the foundational characteristic of everyone who's really a Christian. There is a poorness of spirit. It doesn't speak anything of a, of a material poorness or richness. It speaks of a poverty of spirit. It speaks of that person or those people who recognize their sinfulness. They realize that next to a holy God that they deserve nothing but hell. They deserve nothing but death and punishment, separation from God, that God is too holy. And like Isaiah, they cry out in Isaiah chapter 6, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a person of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And those who are poor in spirit recognize their sinfulness. They don't boast in their gloriousness. They don't boast in all of their riches. They recognize that apart from God's grace, they are nothing. That is the characteristic of a Christian, of a kingdom citizen. And so that's the beginning, that's the foundation. And we see really three groupings of these uh, beatitudes, if you will. The first uh, three really talk about our heart um, attitudes, if you will. We're to be poor in spirit, we're to mourn, uh, and then we're to be gentle in spirit. Those describe the attitudes of our heart. The next three really give a focus on the attentiveness of our heart. What should be the focus of our heart? And if you were with us this 
summer, you'll know that we talked about, about how our mind and our heart are really uh, synonymous. They're really one and the same thing, according to the Scripture. As we thinketh in our hearts. Now, we would say it's weird to, to consider thinking in your heart. We think with our brains. But the heart is that inward person. And so what goes on in our mind, in our heart, in our, in our spirit, if you will, that's what's really true about us. And so, so these next things are, are, are uh, verses 7 through 9, are, are, are these attentive areas. What, what's to be the outward responses to the inward workings of our heart? And then finally, the last 10, 11, and 12, those verses talk about a heart in action. And so we're going to look at all of those things in the weeks ahead. But for now, let's move on to verse 4. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These are not two separate qualities. In fact, all of these different beatitudes, they, they really go together. These things aren't se- uh, able to be separated, if you will. They're all true or none of them are true. And we can fake some things like humility, right? We talked about that last week. But these qualities can't be faked. These qualities are either true or they're not true. And so the poor in spirit are those who mourn. And so kingdom citizens are mourners. And I know that sounds funny, but... And really, it's a paradox, if you will, that to be happy, because blessedness really means happiness in its truest sense. And this type of blessedness and happiness comes to us regardless of the circumstances that we are in. Now, the way we describe happiness today, um, am I talking really fast? It's okay? All right, all right. Uh, Miss Jill... And Brent both brought me coffee this morning from Starbucks. And I got to tell you, I feel like Kramer. Giddy up. I feel like I'm just fixing to <laughs> vibrate right off of this platform here this morning. Wow. Um, I'm going to breathe. Give me just a second. Jill said she was going to pray that my heart wouldn't explode this morning. Huh? Okay, I'm good now. All right. So, so I don't even remember what we were talking about. Coffee? Uh, no, no. Blessedness. Blessedness. It's really a paradox. How, how can you be happy if you're mourning? How can you be happy when you're sad? But this happiness is not the, the understanding that we typically bring to happiness. Uh, we think about happiness based on the situation we're in. Happiness being based upon what's happening in our life. So something bad happens, we're sad. Something good happens, we're happy. But that's not what this is speaking of. What Jesus is speaking of here in these Beatitudes are are blessed things and, and blessedness. It's that state of being regardless of the situation in which we find ourselves. It's really deeper than even joy. Blessedness is gifted to us from God. Blessed are those people who exhibit these qualities because they belong to God. That's all true here. And so as we looked at that foundational aspect, the, the being poor in spirit, it leads necessarily to someone who, who mourns, who mourns in the biblical sense. And so before we look at that specifically, let's talk about how the, the world mourns and how the world finds comfort. So if you're taking notes, hopefully you got a note sheet. How many of you got like one that's folded in half inside? It's like double. I forgot to cut those this morning. So anybody get the like, you've got like two sets of notes. Inside your bulletin, you have a, a double handout, or did they all get cut? If you have those, raise your hand, the double one. Anybody? All right. Everybody that has the double one, go see Miss Janelle. She's got free candy for you. Yeah, like you're holding up. she got free candy for all of you. Free candy. The rest of you, you're out of luck, okay? But blessedness. What does the world consider a comfort during, during sad times? And, and if you have your note, just notice there on the first page, 
the word for being comforted. It comes from the Greek word parakaleo, which means to cause to be encouraged or consoled. To cause to be encouraged or consoled. So when, when we see this ideal of being comforted, this is what Jesus is speaking of. But see, the dictionary, the way the world would define comfort, it's a state of ease and freedom from pain or constraint. So notice the difference. What Jesus means, parakaleo, is the causing of encouragement or consolation in the midst of pain, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of mourning. But you see, the world doesn't recognize that. The world says it's a state of ease or escape or freedom from trouble or mourning or pain. Those two things are diametrically opposed. Amen? They don't go together. You can't force them to be together. And so we need to realize that that the world looks at mourning differently. That's why to the world it seems absolutely absurd that Jesus would say, Blessed are those who mourn when all we want to do is be happy. And so the world tries several different things to bring a worldly sense of comfort, that ease or freedom from pain. One way is that we ignore our problems. We're probably all guilty of that at some time or another, amen? We see that and we've seen it for years. It's evidence in all sorts of ways, but one place you see it is in the music. And it's not just the modern music. You remember, uh, I think it was uh, Bobby McFerrin, Don't Worry, Be Happy? I don't know if you remember the words of that song. Don't Google it right now. It's not that important. But, but just make you a note and look at them later. But if you look at the words of that song, he tells his audience over and over again, don't, oh, I'm, I'll fix this thing. Don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. But he never offers any reason not to worry and to be happy. Go back later and look at the words. It's just a state. Hey, don't worry, be happy. But there's no reason ever given. A lot of people just want to ignore their problems. Another thing that the world does when, when there's a problem in our midst, we try to mask that problem. When we can't ignore the problem, we often try to mask the problem by some means. One, the primary means today is by drugging ourselves. Now, some people do so with alcohol or with illegal drugs. Others go to a doctor and get the drugs prescribed to them. And we try to mask our pain with medication, mask our our discomfort with medication. When Jesus says that there is a blessedness that comes from mournfulness. So why do we try to hide it? Well, possibly we understand mourning more along the lines of how the world understands mourning rather than what Jesus says about mourning. And so we have drug upon drug upon drug. Now listen, I am not a doctor nor a pharmacist. I have stated a Holiday Inn Express recently, so that makes me somewhat qualified to say what I'm about to say. It really doesn't. But listen, for 50 some odd years, they've been researching antidepressant type medication. And for 50 some odd years, they've come to the conclusion that antidepressants don't do anything. They do not do anything. Now listen, I'm not a physician nor a pharmacist. I'm not telling you to stop medication that a physician's put you on. But the proof is not there. All those things do is numb you to a problem. They cause you to be numb. I'm not saying there's never need. Listen, I'm not a pharmacist nor a doctor. Everybody do this. But the research doesn't show out how those things help at all. They don't. They mask. They numb. 
No evidence whatsoever. Zero evidence. Why do you think they're so popular? Two reasons. One is financial. Pharmaceutical companies make a killing off those things. Because think about our society. What is it that our society wants more than anything else, sadly, today? Happiness. Escape from pain. We think mourning is sinful, therefore we choose joy and happiness at any cost. And so we mask those problems that we can't ignore. Now, some people take those things. And again, talk to your doctor. Do the research yourself. Again, I'm not your doctor nor your physician. But I'm telling you, the proof is not there that those things do anything for us but mask our problems. They mask our problems. Others turn to drinking or drugs, as we mentioned a moment ago, to try to do the same thing. Mask our problems. But what happens when we mask our problems with drugs? Drugs bring side effects, legally prescribed or illegal. There's always a price to be paid for the medication, be it illicit or not. There's always a price to be paid. This pill may do this for me in a good sense, but then this pill brings three problems with it. And there are no pills that are free from side effects. It's, it's scary to watch the commercials. You ever watch the commercials for, for drugs? You know, they come out with these new drugs and they're rushing them to the market. And so, so you look at those prescriptions and you see the people running on the beach or playing frisbee with their dog or whatever they do for, for enjoyment. And then, and then all of a sudden here's this long list of side effects. May calls and it goes, goes through this thing. And if, and if I can, just for a moment, it always makes me laugh because usually if you pay attention, it's going to have side effects that even contradict themselves. Constipation and diarrhea in the same <laughs> pill. I'm telling you, I just saw it this week. And I'm not just trying to get a laugh out of you. I'm telling you, those things are scrolling across the screen. Side effect upon side effect. Tim Hawkins tells a, a joke. Tim Hawkins is a Christian comedian. Uh, he told a joke years ago that, you know, about talking about this ideal of taking medication, prescription medication. Uh, boy, uh, I, I, I'm not seeing double anymore, but, you know, I, I've got this, this crazy twitch or whatever. I can't remember exactly how the joke goes. But the point is there was always some type of side effect. So we ignore our problems. We mask our problems. Sometimes we even try to mask them through entertainment or amusement. Now, let me just remind you the word amusement. It's the opposite of muse. To muse means to, to become absorbed, to think, to, to think deeply, to muse upon something that's a good thing. The word amusement is the opposite of that. It's not to think at all. And entertainment is designed to keep us from deep thought. Entertainment, amusement has the purpose of diverting our attention so as to deceive. And folks, listen, I don't know of any culture that's better at this type of deception than our culture today. We have iPods and iPhones and we have music and we have movies and we have Netflix that we can't even leave our house without. We bring it with us and, and our Amazon Prime and, and Hulu and, and it's on our phone, it's on our tablet and everywhere we go, I see people driving down the road and what's playing on the dashboard? A movie or a TV sitcom while they're driving. We're amusing ourselves to death. But here's the truth. For all of our amusement, for all of our prescription and non-prescription drugs, for all of our ignoring of the problems in life, guess what? Those problems are still with us. Are they not? The problems are still with us. 
So the world tries to escape from mourning. But here's the other big thing, and this is where I really want us to camp out here in the remaining time. There is a mourning that Jesus is speaking of here that's different from worldly mourning. This isn't even the good type of mourning where there's a loss. Like we mourn the loss of a loved one when they pass away. That's an appropriate type of mourning, but this is a different mourning even than that. This is a mourning that Jesus speaks of that's deeper and wider and richer. In fact, the Bible uses nine different terms, nine different Greek terms to describe different types of mourning in the Scripture. And again, the bereavement, that is one type of mourning. That is legitimate mourning. Absolutely. It's healthy. And it's sad that we even try to mask that type of mourning with medication, don't we? Folks, it's healthy to mourn. It's right to mourn. You and I were made to suffer loss. It's how God made us. It's how we know we're really alive and living. But this mourning is deeper than that. This comes from the word penthos. It's, it's the strongest word that the Greek language has for sorrow or mourning. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who really deeply, intently mourn. But it's not the, the loss of a pet. It's not even the mourning of the loss of a loved one, a relative, a friend. This type of mourning speaks of one thing, mourning over sin. That's the mourning that's being spoken of here. It's not, Jesus isn't saying, hey, happy are you when you're depressed. That's not what he's saying. Happy, blessed are you when you're down in the dumps. No, what he's saying is, blessed are those people who grieve sin. That's what's in view here. That's why these these beatitudes go together. What does the person who's poor in spirit recognize? Their sinfulness. And then what naturally follows is, there's a mourning and a grieving over their sinfulness. Does that make sense? They follow suit. We're poor in spirit. We recognize that God is holy, that we're not, that apart from God's grace, that we're doomed for destruction. Yet, He is gracious to us. Amen. And so we recognize that, and it naturally should cause us to mourn our sinfulness. They go together. They go together. It's the kind of sorrow that that the Bible describes for Jacob. In the Septuagint translation, remember, the Old Testament was written in in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. About 270, 265 years before Christ, all of the Old Testament was translated into the Greek language and distributed. It's It's one of the reasons we know the prophecies were true and real and given hundreds and thousands of years before they actually occurred because it had already been translated into another language, the whole of the Old Testament. And so the Greek version called the Septuagint for the Old Testament in Genesis 37 verse 34 uses this penthos, this word for mourn, when it describes Jacob's grief when he thought he had lost Joseph. It's the deepest, most sorrowful kind of grief. And it's, it's not just that his son's gone. There's something more that's being described here. It's the same grief the disciples experienced when Jesus had been crucified and before he had been resurrection. There was something, there was something bigger and deeper than just the loss of a teacher, just the loss of the son. There was something beyond that and below that that was foundational. There was a, there was a realization that death is caused by sin. That death is an intruder into the world of humanity. That death came by way of sin. And we looked at that last week in the garden 
How many dinosaurs died before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden in Genesis chapter 3? Zero. There was no death before sin. So there was no prehistoric world before sin. Sin brings death. That's what Romans chapter 5 tells us based on Genesis chapter 3. And so this type of mourning, this deep-rooted mourning, agonizing, is a mourning of sin. That sin brings death. This sorrowful mourning that Jesus describes here is the mourning that comes from godly sorrow, if you're taking notes. Godly sorrow. That's the mourning that Jesus describes. And the Puritans, I, I know I, I quoted from Thomas Watson last week, and, and this is a, a reprint of one of his works from the 1500s, 1600s. I forgot which year this was written, but it's called The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson. Old, old writing, tremendous work, and this work has to do with the characteristics that mark a man who is going to heaven. And half of this book deals with these descriptions in the Beatitudes, and the other half comes from other places in the Scriptures, but it deals with what a man, what a person looks like who's going to heaven. What a person looks like who really is godly, a heavenly person. And he goes through describing and, and page after page as he begins to describe this sorrowful mourning. He writes that the godly man weeps for clinging corruption. The godly man weeps for his own indwelling sin. The godly man weeps because he's overcome by corruption around him. The godly man grieves that he can be no more holy than he is at that moment. The godly man weeps out of a sense of God's love for him and his hatred for sinfulness. When's the last time we wept over our sinfulness? Well, God saved me. I'm not sinful anymore. When's the last time you wept? When's the last time we wept? over sin. The sorrowful mourning that Jesus describes is a godly sorrow. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul describes this kind of sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in the New Testament. If you're in Matthew, just go towards the back of your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and keep going. Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and verse 10, Paul says this. He says, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful. I rejoice that you were made sorrowful. Not that you were made sorrowful. Excuse me. I'm reading it. I'm thinking that doesn't make sense. I rejoice now not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow, and pay attention to this, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. He's contrasting worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is that sorrow that recognizes the woefulness of sin. 
that recognizes the depravity, that realizes the point of, of, of our humanity, that realizes that we are what? But poor in spirit. And friends, listen, that describes believers. Lost people are not poor in spirit. They might be humble in any given moment, but someone without the spirit of Christ in them cannot be poor in spirit. It's impossible. It's a quality that comes from Christ in us, the hope of glory, Paul says in Colossians. It's a quality that comes because God's Holy Spirit takes up residence in all believers. Romans 8, verse uh, 1 and following, verse 9 specifically. Whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ is not of Christ. And this is a Christ quality. He gives it to us. This godly sorrow leads to repentance, and this repentance leads to life. That's what the Scriptures say. So this godly sorrow is is what David speaks of in Psalm 51. Look at Psalm 51, verse 3 and 4. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 51. King David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now had... David only sinned against God in reality. Who had David sinned against? His family, Bathsheba, her husband, right? Against his nation. I mean, it goes on and on and on. But notice what a, what a person who truly, biblically mourns over sin, what they recognize. This is true Mournfulness, true godly sorrow, true repentance. And that sorrow necessarily leads to repentance. David is, is confronted with his sin. The prophet Nathan tells him this elaborate story about someone who is, who is wronging others and sinning against others. And David says, that man should pay. And Nathan says, you are that man. And David doesn't get haughty and pride and he doesn't try to make excuses. He repents in brokenness, in sorrow. And that's what this psalm comes from. It's the sinner's prayer. I was brought forth in sin, but that's not my excuse. In sin my mother conceived me, but that's not my excuse. I sinned against you. I sinned against you, holy God. And look down at verse 7. Look what, 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 what David says, what he prays. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be what? Whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. 
Then what will I do? Here's the fruit of true repentance. Then I will teach transgressors. I'll teach other sinners your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. And he he goes on. It's a beautiful passage of repentance. This is someone who's lowly and contrite in heart and spirit. This is someone who has godly sorrow. It necessarily leads to repentance. It reminds me of Job. In the book of Job, it's spelled J-O-B like job, right? But in the book of Job, Job verse 1 of chapter 1, it describes Job as blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And then we see that Satan comes before God. Because remember, Satan's not bound. Nobody in any church in any part of the planet right now is binding Satan or his demons. He has access to God himself right now, according to Scripture. And we see that here in the story of Job. Satan approaches God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? Is God sovereign just over the blessings that he gives us? He is, but not just the blessings. God is sovereign over everything that comes our way. Satan doesn't come to God and ask about Job. Satan comes to God and God shows Satan who Job is. Have you considered Job? That's how it goes down, right? And Satan wants then to to turn Job against God. He's blessed, God. If you allow me to do A, B, C, and D to him, he'll curse you. And so God says, you can do anything but take his life. And Satan does everything but take his life. And at the end of all of those things, all of the horror that happens to Job, here's the response in Job 42, verses 5 and 6. And I would write this down. I would put it on a note card like Shane talks about, right? I would would put this on my mirror. This is one that I would refer back to. Job 42, verses 5 and 6. Job says, I have heard of you. By the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ash. Job knew God, but he didn't know God like this. He knew God, but his sorrow caused him to know God more intimately than he had ever known God before. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now I see you. And where did Job see God? Not in all the blessing. He saw God in the pain, in the sorrow, in the mourning. Friends, listen. Your poor health may not be a curse. Your unemployment is not necessarily a punishment from God. All of those things God uses to what? Bring us to a place of biblical mourning so that we, like Job, say, Now I see you with my eyes. Now I see you. And folks, can I just say something personal? You know I've been sick for a long time. And I've told some of you, and and it's not just the coffee speaking this morning, but I have been feeling better in the last two weeks than I have in five, six years probably. Four, Four, five years for sure. But folks, listen. As happy, as blessed as I feel to feel well today, I do not trade the pain for anything. And I'm not just saying that to sound spiritual and holy. I mean it. I do not trade all of these years with these different Lyme bacteria for anything because through these things, I've learned the end of me. God uses our pain and our sorrow to bring us to an end of ourselves and a recognition of God. Well, you're the preacher. Yeah, I'm the preacher. And I battle sin and pride just like you. But I assure you, 
God is blessed in the hard times ever bit as much, if not more, than He is in the good times. There's a richness and a realness. There is a sweetness to pain. That's mourning, biblically speaking. That's mourning. And I promise you, that I do not mean that in a boastful way at all. It's not me. It's the Lord God. I, I, I promise you. I never would have believed that. Never five years ago. In fact, I probably would have preached against it. But that's true. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to life. It leads to a recognition that God is holy and awesome and good even when bad things happen to us. He's rich. He's loving even in allowing trouble and hardship and pain. God is glorious. Amen? Amen. That is a godly sorrow. Job This blameless, upright, God-fearing man understands better who God is because of his spiritual poverty and because of godly sorrow. What about us? Godly sorrow should lead us to repentance. That repentance leads us to God's forgiveness, and that forgiveness should lead us to the comfort of God. It's only then can we, like James says in James chapter 4, verses 8, 9, and 10, James 4, 8, 9, and 10, it's only then can we draw near to God. When we recognize who He is and who we are. He goes on to say, Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. That flies in the face of modern theology today. But that is biblical. Amen? To be miserable, to mourn and to weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of God and then He will lift you up. That's biblical mourning. That's a right perspective to mourn over sin. And so, three things real quick. Three areas of sin that we should mourn over. The first, the first is our own sin. And folks, listen, this is hard because it's easy to point out there and go, have you seen what Pete did this past week? Or, for instance. Sorry. Oh, here's what he did, all right, you ready? No, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know that any, anything wrong that he did, but it's only an example. Pete's going to beat me up after church, but... Our own sin. It's easy to point out someone else's sin. It's not so easy to point out our own. And that's what happens with David and Nathan. Remember, Nathan tells him a story about a man. David just didn't realize it was himself that Nathan was speaking of. Nathan was speaking of David. And he tells him a story. And David very simply, very easily, very naturally in the flesh said, That guy should pay. Nathan said, You are that guy. And David recognized his sin. Oh, that we would first recognize our own sin before we point the finger at others. It's easy to look at those Muslims who, who, who killed all of those innocent people on 9-11. That's easy. What's hard is to recognize that your heart and my heart is ever bit as wicked as any Muslim. And sometimes more so. Our sin just manifests itself in different ways. I don't think any of you here have, have murdered thousands of people. Pete? Uh, uh, no, no. We're not guilty of that sin. But when we're angry with someone in our heart, guess what we've done? We've murdered them, according to Jesus. You see, we're all guilty. And so someone who mourns over sin starts with their own sin. 
That, that verb there, blessed are those who mourn, it's a verb. It's what's called a present tense participle. Aren't you glad you learned that this morning? You probably don't care, except for this point. It means a continual mourning. It's not that you were sorry for your sin and then Jesus saved you and now everything's good. That's not what it is. It's that now that you are saved, now that you are poor in spirit, you recognize every single day how sinful you are. And you confess that sin. Present, continuous action. Like Paul says in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am. Not that I was. Wretched man that I am. He was an apostle. Called of God. He writes most of the New Testament. That's awesome. And he recognized that he was sinful. Wretched man that I am. And friends, listen, if you and I, if we don't see the fact that we are wretched sinners apart from the grace of God, then we need to do a heart inspection. We need to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We need to examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. True mourning over sin starts here. It starts here. It's what's described in Psalm 38, verse 4, where David says that he has this heavy burden this weight that's too much for him. It's not that he was carrying a load of, of, of stuff. It's that his sinfulness was too much. He couldn't stand under the weight. But praise God that God is the lifter of our sin. Amen? And so it starts with us. We recognize our own sinfulness. Secondly, then we're able to mourn over the sin of others. Not to call other sinners. <laughs> but to mourn over their sin, to recognize that Muslims are not our enemy. We just celebrated 9-11. We remember. Obviously, I remember that. That was a, a horrible, tragic thing. And we've forgotten. Our country seems to be asleep. I, I get it. I do. But the Muslim's not our enemy. Satan and sin are our enemies. The Muslim is a victim of sin. A victim. His sin only, or her sin only, manifests differently than your sin and mine. So we mourn the sins of others. Like Jesus, just jot this down, Matthew 23, verse 37. Matthew 23, verse 37. When Jesus came up to Jerusalem, just before his crucifixion, he comes up to Jerusalem and he wept. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you together as children the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. He mourned their rejection. He mourned the sin that kept them from him. We too should mourn for the sin of others. And thirdly, the third area of mourning over sin is just a general mourning for the sins of the world. How sin has wreaked havoc on this world. Charlie and I were speaking this morning, looking at, I've got some different uh, rocks uh, from different places, different trips out in uh, central Texas, uh, a couple from Colorado, different places. Have one rock that uh, my wife found up in a, on, near the top of a mountain up in uh, Colorado, the uh, Montrose area of Colorado. That rock is, is special because it has a seashell embedded into the rock, which is tremendous. And, and I, I think uh, the reason I like it so much is because it's, it helps to prove that there was a global flood that covered all of the mountains. Seashells in Colorado, it doesn't make sense unless 
the Bible's true, but, but I've got these different things and, and have these different rocks from these different places. And they help me to remember trips that I've taken and places I've gone and, and, and just looking, like, like going to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have seen the Grand Canyon? Have you seen him? It's breathtaking. It's just an, an immensity. Just, it's enormous. And, and you look out and you realize how small you are. And, and if you're crazy like me, you think, man, I could just drop off and, and I'd be gone. I'd be dust. And not that I want to do that. I'm not saying that. But it just, it's just so big, it would just swallow us up. Swallow us up. I remember doing a, a ski trip one year in the mountains in Colorado. And, and the guy uh, who was driving... Uh, it was crazy. I just don't know how nicely to say it. He, he's driving way too fast and taking way too many chances on these icy roads. And, and, and I was in the back praying and fasting. I was weeping, gnashing teeth. None of it helped. It was still just this horrendous trip. We made it, though, obviously, because I'm still standing here. But it was horrible. But you look out and you see something like those mountains, snow-capped, and it's beautiful and majestic. For some, it might be a beach. Not in Galveston where there's flesh-eating bacteria, but maybe Florida, right? You see the beach and the white sand that's imported there from the mountains or, and the blue water. You see all of those things and you think, oh, there's a God. It's so beautiful. But folks, we forget that this world is marred and tainted by our sin. As beautiful as we think this place is, it pales in comparison to what it was before the fall and what it will be when God remakes it. The world itself groans. Romans 8 verses 21 and following say that the whole of creation groans and travails like a woman in childbirth wanting to be redeemed. This world wants to be remade. And sin is the problem. And so the righteous mourn over their sin. The righteous mourn over the sins of others. And the righteous mourn over sin in general. As it's affected this world. But my friends, listen. We have a promise of comfort from God. And so just as we close, let me just give you a couple things here. One, know this. What, what, what does God promise? Does he promise us just a, a worldly happiness? No. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, blessed. This is a richness. Blessed are those who mourn this way over sin. For they shall be comforted. God is close, number one, to those who grieve. Psalm 34, verse 18 says, Yahweh is near, or the Lord, all caps, that, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the name of God. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is the first and second beatitude, folks, right here. He saves those who are, he's near to those who are brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. To be poor in spirit and to be broken, mournful over sin. The first two Beatitudes. God is close to us when we grieve. And as I said earlier, let me just reemphasize. We are never closer to God than when we mourn biblically. We are never closer to God than when we mourn biblically. Please listen, can I just be a pastor for a second, not a preacher? Please don't mask your, 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 your mournfulness. Don't drink it away and don't drug it away. And don't busy yourselves to death. Don't entertain yourselves to death. Allow God's Spirit to help you grieve and mourn biblically. It's healthy. It's right. God's close to those who grieve in this way. And secondly, God comforts 
the sorrowful. God comforts the mournful. We see that throughout Scripture. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. (laughs) Jeremiah is the only um, prophet that I can recall where God says, Hey, Jeremiah, I'm going to send you to your people, the people of of Judah. You're going to preach what I tell you to preach. And you ready? No one's going to listen. I mean, God tells him that up front. You're going to preach and no one's going to be saved. You're going to, be treat, uh, you're going to preach and you're going to be treated horribly. They're going to hate you and they're going to despise you. Okay, you ready? I mean, what kind of pep talk is that? None of us would sign up, would we? And what does Jeremiah do? He does it. God chose him. In fact, I love Jeremiah 1.4. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He tells Jeremiah, and I appointed you to be a prophet to my people. God had a plan before he was born, before he was formed in the womb. But in Jeremiah 31, 13, we see a promise of God's comfort. As Jeremiah prophesies to this sinful nation, his people who were in sin, and they were paying the rightful price of their sin, he says, I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. That's what God does. John 16, 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. When Jesus was crucified, what did the world do? They rejoiced. What did the demons do? Rejoiced. They thought they had won. He says, you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Do you know there's coming a day when there will be no more, no more pain. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more heartache. Revelation 21 verse 4, folks, you can bank on this promise. There's coming a day when he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because those first things have passed away. God's going to take those things away. But now... Now we're blessed when we mourn biblically. So how can you and I make sure that we mourn rightly? First, you have to know God. You have to be a citizen of the kingdom. If you're not a Christian, you can't mourn this way. If you're not a Christian, it's not for you. It's not. God's sovereign. He gets to make the rules. Amen? And He promises this for those He blesses with salvation. So priority one... Make sure that you're saved. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Repent. Does your sin hurt you the way it hurts God? If not, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Turn from your sin. If you and I can sin and there is no biblical mourning and remorse over that sin, then friends, listen, there's no Holy Spirit residing in us. Sin for a Christian breaks the heart of God, it should break the heart of the Christian as well. So do business with God. You want to mourn biblically? Friends, listen. Don't turn on the view. Now that's sinful in and of itself, amen? Don't listen to that. Don't turn on Dr. Phil or Oprah. Read the scriptures. Read about those people who mourned rightly and find comfort therein. 
Jesus mourned over the sins of his people. David mourned over his own sin. Paul mourned over his own sin over and over again. I'm telling you, the Psalms, written by real people with real problems, real pain. Immerse yourself in the Scriptures. And then thirdly, give serious consideration to your sin. Why? Because your sins were such that God paid a price for them. Amen? God paid the price for our sins. In fact, the price for our sins was the death of His only begotten Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only, His one and only, only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a high price. That is a high price. Listen. I think that I would gladly and willingly give my life for my children. I can't fathom in any scenario where I'd want my children to give their life for me. And the Father gave His Son so that you and I could be set free from sin. Tremendous price paid. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord God, I, I pray that through tearfulness, through what I feel is an inadequacy to rightly deal with your Scripture, Lord God, I pray that even in the midst of, of those things, that your Word being true and your Word being sound, God, your Word being sharper than a two-edged sword, I pray that you would use your Word to bring us to a place of repentance mourning our sin, mourning the sins around us and others and the sin that has marred this world. Help us to be those kind of people because you promise us that blessed are those who mourn this way and they will be comforted. So God, may that be true of us here this morning. And I pray that if there's any that has not turned from their sinfulness, repenting of their sin, God, I pray that right now even, you would draw them to yourself, that they would cry out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner, not comparing themselves to anyone else but you. You are the glorious standard. So God, would you save them now? And if that is you, you can do the very thing that we witnessed this past week. You can be obedient to declare to the world that God has saved you the way Craig did last Sunday through baptism. I pray that we would be obedient to God's stirring in our spirit this morning. And we ask these things in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank